This message was given at Des Moines Campus Fellowship's Summer Leadership Training back in 2020. The theme that year was Designed, where they studied the creation, fall, and redemption of God's beautiful design. We hope you find this encouraging. Well, I'm, I'm excited to be with you, and I am hoping that uh, after uh, I get done talking that we can do a few minutes of Q&A. Uh, I anticipate that there will be some questions, and I'm, I'm trying to address some of them in the message, but I think there's, there, is a, there are a lot more questions than I'm going to have time to get to, so I'm happy to s- stick around. I know that the, the whole topic uh, of race and racism, the title of my message is Race, Racism, and What to Do, and I know it's a huge thing, and it's something that I have been uh, working on for a long time. I've been reading uh, for years and years about this, not literally everyday reading about it, but I've been looking into this. I've been trying to read books on, uh, from many different perspectives, from a Christian worldview, from a non-Christian worldview. From, within Christianity, there's all kinds of different opinions on this. I've tried to read relatively broadly. I've tried to read history. And so I feel like my heart has about 10 hours of material that I could go through. Uh, I won't do that. That would be some sort of torture, so I'm not, don't worry, I will not do that tonight, uh, but I, I do feel like this is such a big thing that uh, 45-minute message is, is going to be hard to cover. Um, so yeah, and if, if we exceed our time tonight, I'm happy to get together with any of you guys to talk through any of these issues. So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to read our text, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. So let's go ahead and, and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for tonight, and we just we thank you that you you are the King of glory and of grace, that, that you sit on a throne of grace. And Lord, we thank you that we have been created in your image. We thank you, Lord, just for the truth that you are the giver of all that is good, Lord. Just even today, the ability to live today, to breathe, to walk around, to think, to talk, Whatever health we have, Lord, all of it is a gift of your grace. And we thank you most of all for the gift of your son, Jesus. That you, Lord Jesus, you came down from heaven to earth and you lived a sinless life and you died in our place, Lord. That we might know you, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might rejoice in you, that we might spend eternity with you forever. And Lord, now we know that we're going to be diving into a pretty complicated subject, and I just pray that you'd give us grace to, to hear, give us grace to think. I pray that you would just give us a real spirit of humility before you. But we need your help, so we commit our time to you now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you, you can open it to Genesis chapter 1. I'm, I've not been at any of these messages, but I'm assuming you've heard uh, quite a bit from the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created him in his own image, or in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so this is the text, this is the foundation, Uh, this is the truth that we need to put our feet into, we need to stand on if we're going to make sense out of race, racism, and what to do, which is my outline. If you're taking notes, it is race, racism, and what to do, and my goal is to be as helpful to you as possible. 
Uh, it's a big subject, and so my goal is to just walk through the Word of God and to think through a little bit of history and try to make sense out of what is happening uh, today. You know, there's a verse in First Chronicles 12:32. It says, "From the Issacharite who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with their relatives under their command." And so it says, "The Issacharites, they understood the times. They understood the times that they were living in." And they knew what to do. Because they understood the times, they knew what to do. They were facing some challenge. And by the grace of God, they understood what was happening. And therefore, they knew what to do by the grace of God. And so that's what I am hoping to do. I'm not hoping to settle the issue of uh, racism in a 45-minute talk. I'm not trying to lay out all the political policies uh, that would bring about uh, and that would bring about justice and eliminate racism and the impact of racism, that's not really an option. My hope is to think through what racism is and then figure out what do we do. How do we, I mean, we are very limited people, but what do we do and how do we move forward? And so this text is crucial in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27. I'm going to read 27 again. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Adrian Rogers once said that the Bible is shallow enough that a child can come to the Word of God and get a drink. And it is also deep enough that you can swim in it your entire life and never get to the bottom. And this is one of those truths in the Word of God, this simple truth that human beings have been created in the image of God. It is a shallow enough concept that a child can come to it and get something from it, that we have been created in the image of God but it is deep enough that we can swim in it and never reach the bottom. It is such a powerful reality that we are image bearers of God. And what Genesis 1 teaches us is that every human being, male and female, regardless of the color of your skin, if you're white or black or Asian, Hispanic, regardless of the color of your skin, you are an image bearer of God. And you must be dealt with seriously. That your dignity is important to God and it should be important to fellow human beings. And if people are created in the image of God, then there are many implications that follow. If that is a true statement, human beings, male and female, regardless of your skin color, you are made in the image of God, there are so many implications. I'm going to give you one. First, it's the idea that multiple races is not a biblical concept. The idea of many races is really not a biblical uh, concept. It is a social construct. It's built on the idea that there are different races, there's different types of human beings that you divide up on the basis of skin color or different physical features. And that, that really, from the very beginning, we see that we descend from Adam and Eve. We have the same parents. And so we belong to the human race. And this concept of different races can become extremely dangerous. And so throughout history, people have tried to use skin color and physical features to rank the value of human life. So how valuable are you as a human being? Well, let's look at the color of your skin. Let's look at your physical features. Then we will figure out how human you really are. We will figure out how valuable your life really is. You know, my first class at Drake University was called Darwinian Evolution. Darwinian Evolution. Has anyone taken that class? I don't even know if it's still around. That's a long time ago. But I took the class, and in the class, we studied origin of the species, Species and the descent of man. And what, you, what, what I was surprised to read about, I did not know this, but, but through Darwinian evolution, Darwin, he thought of 
black people as less evolved white people. That's how he thought of them. They're just less evolved white people. And that was certainly covered up throughout the course of the book and minimized, but when you read his work, you see pretty clearly that that's how Darwin thought about black people. And it's based off of his evolutionary theory. And Hitler did the exact same thing. That he looked at the color of your eyes, the color of your hair, and he said, there is a superior race. There is a race that is better than, than, than another race. There is one pure race. There is one race that is truly and fully human. But when you look at the Word of God, the Word of God does not allow us to think that way. That there is one race, the human race, regardless of your skin color, you are fully human. Regardless of the color of your eyes, your physical features, regardless of if you're strong, it's not dependent on your intelligence, whether you're brilliant or not intelligent at all. It's not dependent on whether or not you are healthy or you're sick. You are worthy of being treated with dignity. There is human value, and that value and that dignity, com- dignity comes from our Creator. And so I want to encourage you as Christians to not take that point for granted, that the Bible and the God of the Bible is the only coherent foundation for human dignity. There is no coherent, digni- or, uh, coherent argument or foundation for human dignity in the world outside of God. Atheism doesn't provide it. Hinduism doesn't provide it. I mean, you, you keep going up and down these different worldviews and different belief systems, and you don't come up with the dignity of human beings. Uh, I don't know if you guys ever read Babylon B. I probably, I, I probably read it too much at times, um, but I saw this article and I just loved it. And so if you want to put that up there, here's the title. It says, Atheist Launch No Lives Matter Movement. Did you guys see this? Here's Richard Dawkins. Say it with me. No lives matter. That's what he says. No lives matter. If you want to go to the next slide here. It says, according to sources, organizers of NLM have planned numerous rallies to protest other rallies claiming that, that lives matter. The organization's mission statement defines the group as people motivated by the belief that all human lives are equally meaningless. And that is true. And it's so funny because you look at this and you're like, obviously it's picking on Black Lives Matter. It's doing some things that are probably a little bit taboo. But I, I read that and I thought that's exactly right. If you move away from the word of God, tell me where does human dignity come from? Why is racism wrong? You move away from God's word, tell me why it is wrong. There is no objective foundation. There is no reason for it. And I think when I was younger in my walk with the Lord, I would quickly move away from that point. I would just kind of grant that point. Okay, you're an atheist, you value human life. You're an agnostic, you value human life. But there is no foundation for it apart from God's word that we are created in the image of God. Number two, another implication is that ethnicity is a biblical concept. So within the one human race, God has created ethnic diversity. It says in the book of Acts that from one man he made all the nations of the earth. And in heaven, you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you see that there are people from all around the world, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And so this concept of diversity within this one common humanity is a real thing. It is a real thing in the scriptures. And so why did God do this? Why did he create diversity within the human race? Well, for our good and for his glory. That's why he did it, to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of his glory, his, the greatness of his glory. And he did it. He, he determined how we would look and where we would live that we might know him that we might worship him, that we might give our lives to him. 
And so ethnicity is a biblical concept. Number three, this means for creating the image of God, this means that we all have been created for the same reason. Every person, regardless of where you live or when you live, it does not matter. You've been created for the same reason or for the same purpose, which is a wild idea that it doesn't matter if you know a person. It doesn't even matter when a person lives. What you know about that human being is that they are worthy of dignity. They are created in the the image of God, and they have been created for the same reason I have been created. That is to know and love and worship God, to bring glory to God. Number four, this means we all have the same problem. We all have the same problem, that the fundamental problem that we have as human beings is sin. Now, sin is going to take shape in our world, and there's going to be all kinds of threats that will come at us because of sinful human beings. In reality, we are probably the greatest threat to our own lives. But you will see there are threats in the world that will come after people. But ultimately, before God, before our Creator, it does not matter where you were born. It doesn't matter when you were born. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. We all have the same problem. And And that is that we are dead in our sins, our trespasses. Number five, we all have the same, we are all saved the same way. That human beings are all saved the same way. Since we have this, we've been created for the same purpose, we belong to the same race, we all have the same problem, and what you see in the scriptures is that all people who are saved by the grace of God are saved the same way. They're saved through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That he came into the world and died, not for white people or black people. He didn't die for a few people over here in this part of the world. He didn't die for for the Jewish people alone but he died for the human race. That his blood was poured out because we all have the same problem, we all have the same purpose in our lives, and the only way we can be reconciled back to God is through the shedding of his blood. And this is where we are to find our deepest identity as human beings. Our deepest identity, certainly God knows the color of our skin, he knows the history of our family, and certainly God cares about that. But our deepest identity is not to be found in those things. It is to be found in Christ. That this is what he's doing in the church, is that he's making one humanity, a new humanity of people. Ephesians 2 says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at That time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jews and Gentiles, there was a real divide. And it says, you Gentile people who were cut off from God without hope, apart from the covenant of God, you were not circumcised, but now through Christ you who are far away have been brought near. You've been brought near. He goes on to say, for he himself is our peace. He has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do it? By setting it aside in his flesh. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which which he put to death their hostility. 
He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. To the Jews and the Gentiles and to every person, he came to preach peace. Peace through the cross. Peace through the shedding of his blood. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And so we have tremendous commonality as Christians. I mean, we are one. This is our deepest identity. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ, created in the image of God, and purchased by the blood of Christ. And God now wants to put on display this this new humanity of Jews and Gentiles, of people who are different, that they would come into the church, they'd be reconciled by the work of Jesus, and then the wisdom of God and the glory of God can be put on display through the church. And so it is important for us to understand that we have so much in common with a person we've never met in in Vietnam. We don't know them. Uh, We have no relationship with them. They speak a different language, different culture, different history. But we have so much in common and we are to find our deepest identity in Christ and that, and that the gospel of grace and the church of Jesus Christ is really the only true hope of this, this racial harmony where these two groups are put together and become one new humanity. And so that is race. Number, number two is racism. What about racism? What is racism? I wanted to mention the first point, I know these truths. These truths that I just laid out, I know you know them well, but they are so foundational and we never want to move past them. We can never move past them. Okay, back to racism. What about racism? Biblically, racism is a thing. It is a thing. Jonah was a racist. Many Jews were racist. A lot of the Jews, they called the Gentiles dogs. And you shouldn't think cute puppy dog in your mind. This is a horrific, this is a horrific thing. It's basically calling them rats. They are, they're just rats. That's who they are. And so you see racism in the Bible, discrimination on the basis of someone's race. You see that in the Word of God, but you don't really see the word racism. It's not really defined all that clearly. So what we have to do as students of God's Word is that we need to put together these biblical texts in order to help us understand what racism is. And what racism is, is is that it is a mixture of sins. It is a mixture, mixture of sins. See, our hearts are so full of sin that we can, we can fuse different sins together. Different sins and different you know, elements of the flesh, they can come together and they can produce some unbelievable sins in our life. So racism is a mixture of sins that fuse together to unleash hell on earth. That's what it is. It's going to unleash hell on earth. Now, what are, what, what's the mixture of sins? What are the ingredients? Well, there's a lot of things that can actually produce racism. Some of the staples are pride, this self-exaltation, and that can come in many forms. It's not just the, the boisterous person. It's pride plus hatred. Hatred is a horrific thing in the human heart. You, you can go from totally fine with someone to hatred in about one second. Something can happen. You, your heart just flips. I hate you. It's not hard. It is so easy. Pride, hatred, and then partiality or favoritism. Partiality. So it's pride, hatred, partiality, plus fill in the blank. There's, a, there's all kinds of things that can contribute to these three sins. But I think these are, these are the basic things. These are the basic elements of racism. Pride, hatred, partiality. And then you can include in there all kinds of greed. You can include in there lust. You can include in all these different types of desires of the flesh. And it will spit out racism. 
And so I've been thinking about racism. What is it from a biblical concept? Well, I think those three ideas are totally connected to racism. But what is it? Like, what does it do? We know it's horrible. We know it's awful. I mean, the world we live in knows it's terrible. But what does it do? And so this is what I did. I made a big list. This is the way my brain works, as I made a big list. And then I said, okay, what do these things have in common? How can we collapse them down to get to the root? So we can figure out what, what, what is it doing? Because what, what racism does, here's the image in my head. What it does, if you can imagine, there's like a wall, and on the other side of the wall is hell. And there's a door. And this is not... This is true of, of racism and all kinds of other sins. But what, what it is, what racism is, is you go over to the door. There's actually a door right there. So on the other, I guess in this analogy, the other side of that door is hell. Okay, you got it right there. There's a door. And what, what racism does is, it, is that it unlocks the door and it opens the door. It just unlocks the door, opens it. And then over time, it's just a matter of time. And the fire of hell will come into the world. That's what's going on. So, but what is it doing? How does it do that? Well, I think there's two things. First, racism dehumanizes, and second, it separates. Racism dehumanizes, and it separates. It dehumanizes because racism, what, it's, what it does is that it doesn't ascribe full, this is how it starts at least, it doesn't ascribe full human dignity to a group of people on the basis of their skin color or some physical feature. That's what it's doing. It's, it doesn't ascribe full human dignity. And then, once that idea sinks in, there are some implications. One of them is that if I'm the racist, then my race is superior. It is above that group that I'm de dehumanizing. It is superior to that. And there's something else that happens. What happens is that an, an idea logically flows that people that belong to that group are not fully human, and therefore they don't need to be treated as fully human. They're not fully human, and therefore they don't need to be treated as fully human. And that is when the door is unlocked, and it is open, and it is, it is simply a matter of time before some really horrific, awful things come through that door. That is what is going to happen. You have unlocked the door and opened the door to hell. Now, let me explain how this works. I'm going to use a little bit of an extreme example, so just, just go with me for a second here. I think it'll illustrate the point. Uh, last year, my kids, so I have, last year at this time, I have an 11-year-old, two 9-year-olds, a 7-year-old, and a 6-year-old. These are my kids. And my youngest four, nine, uh, two 9-year-olds, seven, six, they got into bunnies. Okay, so new, new baby bunnies, new baby bunnies. So, so they're looking around because they found that different places in the grass, there's like a little bunny nest. Have you ever stumbled upon a little bunny nest in the ground? So my kids one day, they found this little bunny nest. I think I had one or two little bunnies and they played with them, let them go. And then they said, that was a terrible decision. We should have played with them longer. And so they're, they're hunting for more bunny rabbits, okay? So now they're looking and um, they, they stumble upon this little nest that has maybe six or seven or eight. I don't even know how many. It is loaded with bunnies. It is the jackpot of bunnies. And so they're, they're just overjoyed, and they start to play with these bunnies. Now, I, I know a veterinarian. I said, hey, if my kids play with them, is the mama bunny going to, like, eat them or something? Or what? I don't know. How, is it going to be bad? And she goes, no, that's, that's more with birds. And I was like, okay, whatever. So my kids are playing with them. I'm not a vet, okay? So I don't know. I don't know. But they're, they're playing with them. 
And they're having the time of their life. And I have a dog. He's about a 140-pound dog. And he comes out. He comes out. My kids are playing with him. And I'm standing right there. And I see him coming. And I'm like restraining him. So he's fine. He gets under control. But he wants to smell the bunny. He wants to just smell it. So do you have the image in your mind? Baby bunny sitting in the grass like this big. Sitting in the grass. 140-pound dog coming. And all Manny, my dog, does is he puts his nose on the head of the baby bunny. And I'm watching it to make sure Manny doesn't do anything bad. He just puts his, his nose on the head of the baby bunny and the baby's, baby bunny's head just snaps and falls down and the baby falls down and dies. Okay, so this is what happens. So it just snaps. And I thought, are you kidding me? What? He didn't even hit it hard. It's like it didn't have strength in its neck or something. And so, so I felt really bad. But do you, do you know what I did not do in that situation? We did not call 911. We, didn't, we did give it mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but that did not work. Um, we didn't give it mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. But, but we just, you know, you know what we said? That's too bad. And then we kept playing with the bunnies. I don't know. What are we supposed to do? We kept playing with the bunnies. Now, I, I'm not advocating any type of animal cruelty here, but I don't, we didn't really care. It's like, that's too bad. Let's keep going. Right now, I have, a, I have some owls in my backyard. So, so I walked outside, and this, this guy's in my backyard right now. Look at that guy. Do you guys have ever seen an owl in flight? Pretty impressive. There's two of them. And today, I had conclusive evidence as to why they're in my backyard. They're in my backyard because they're hunting for baby bunnies. They're hunting for bunnies. And so here they are. And, my, and we're just sitting there, and we're watching them. And they're incredible creatures but I really don't feel that bad for the bunnies. I'm like, that stinks. I'm going to go about my life. Owls got to eat. That's what needs to happen. It's a circle of life. Lion King, this is fine. (laughs) And if you think about it for a moment, you probably agree with me. You probably, I mean, should I run out there and kill the owl or put the owl in jail? Probably not. The reason I don't feel moved the reason when we put a worm on a fish hook to go fishing, I don't feel moved. I'm not like, oh, this poor worm. You don't feel that way either, probably. Do you know why? Because it's not a human being. It's not a human being. And so what that means practically is that since it's not a human being, it is not worthy of being treated like a human being. It's not worthy of it. And when ideology sinks in to people's brains that dehumanizes a person, people created in the image of God will begin to treat other people created in the image of God like they're rabbits. I don't want to be mean, but whatever. What can I get out of them? And all throughout human history, people have used the beauty of God's diversity within the human race as the point of exploitation. That is what people have done throughout history, that the beauty within the diversity of the human race is the point of exploitation. So because you are different, they don't say, look at the glory of God. They say, because you are different, you are less than us. And therefore, we will exploit you, 
on the basis of your skin color, eye color, nose color, hair color, size of your nose. And what you do is you label that entire group. You say, this is what the, this is what the group is, and every individual in the group therefore possesses these characteristics, and therefore I don't need to think about it. I just do whatever I want. And this is typically not a super conscious exercise. It's just a picture of the deceitfulness of the human heart. And then it begins to grow into the culture. And you don't think. And then you begin to separate those people out from your day-to-day life so you don't see them. You don't really think about them. They're removed from you, which further drives the dehumanization process. It is a horrific thing. It is an evil thing. And unfortunately, it still happens. It still happens in the world. So instead of marveling at the, at the beauty of God that, he's, that, has, that he has put on display through the diversity of human race, we exploit human beings. And this is one of the reasons hell exists. This is one. Hell exists for sin, but racism is sin. And so hell exists to punish that type of behavior. So what then do we do? What do we do then? So if that's racism, each one of these things I could talk about for hours, that's racism, what do we do about it? How do we respond? Well, I just want to say it's very confusing right now. And I don't really know for sure exactly what we do. It's very confusing because racism is still a thing. And until the Lord Jesus returns, it's going to be a thing. That's not a call to do nothing. That is simply a statement of fact. That it will be around just like lust will be around until the Lord Jesus returns. Just like anger will be around and jealousy will be around, racism will be around. And so what in the world do we do? It is an evil that must be fought against, but what do we do? It's confusing. It has a history that impacts today. You have Black Lives Matter proclaiming defund the police. You have the Democratic Party. You have the Republican Party. You have the media. You have social media. You have Christians fighting with other Christians that are saying things that are different. You have churches fighting with one another in the country over what to do. And so you look at that, I look at that, and I get what I call the Psalm 73 experience. Do you know what that is? I think it's verse 16, where Asaph, he's not talking about racism, but he's talking about a common human experience where he says, when I tried to look, when I tried to figure out all this stuff, it seemed hopeless to me. Like, what do I do? I know it's bad. What do we do? What do we do? Let me give you a couple things. One we should pursue justice. We should. That's what we should do as Christians. We, sh- we should proclaim the gospel of grace and, and we, should, we should pursue justice. Proverbs 28 verse 5 says, evil men don't understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. completely. It does not say evil men do not understand injustice. Evil men created in the image of God who are loved by God are able to spot injustice, not with perfect clarity, but they are able to spot injustice. They're able to spot racial injustice. They're able to see, because they're human beings, that slavery was a blight. It is a, it is a massive failure, evil in the history of our country, in the history of the world, that lynchings were real and horrific and attended by 
people who would worship God in the morning and then go to a lynching in the afternoon. That happened in our country. That Jim Crow was an evil against God, segregation and redlining, and you just get into all of it, and it is such a mess. And as Christians, we are not to look at the mess and say, therefore, we can do nothing. That's not what we are to do. But rather, wherever there are laws that are unjust, they should be replaced with just laws. That's what we should do. We should use our voice and our vote to remove unjust laws. We should use our hands and our hearts and our voice to love racists and those who are oppressed by racism. It's part of being the salt and the light of the world. Remember, we have a common standing before God. We are sinners. The racist needs the redemption of God as much as those oppressed by the racists. And so we are to use our voice and our vote and our hands and our heart to love and to represent Christ in the world. We should do that. God is a God of justice. To walk with him is to pursue justice. Number two, we need to know that justice is hard. It is really, really hard. Justice is a good thing. It is a beautiful thing, but it is a very difficult thing to produce. This is why the wicked don't understand it. They can't do it. They, the wicked, those who don't know God, will not produce justice. Why? Because they're wicked. They don't, they're not humble before God and his word. They don't have the fear of God. It is the fear of God that is the beginning of knowledge. It's the fear of God that is the beginning of wisdom. It is the path of righteousness that God will bless with justice. See, justice is on the path of righteousness. So to live an unjust law, law by definition, will take you down the path, or to, to live in unrighteousness will take you down the path of injustice. And the wicked don't walk on the path of righteousness. And so it's very difficult. And this has been a helpful illustration for me. Again, one of the goals is I want to be as helpful to you as possible as I'm trying to make sense out of all of this. And here's the illustration. It's the idea that justice is more often like an airplane than a light switch. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think this will be helpful to you, that justice, at a go especially at a governmental le level, is more like an airplane than it is a light switch. So if I said to any one of you right here, I said, hey, could you go turn off that light switch? Or could you turn it on or turn it off? How many of you could do it? All of you. Yeah, we got a few people. Wow, I'm, I'm really proud of you guys. You can do it. I believe in you. You could do it, and you can just go, this is, you could do that all day. You just turn it on, and then you turn off the light. You turn it on, you turn off the light. And oftentimes, especially what's happening right now, is that this is the approach of the culture towards justice. Turn the light on. Just do, just hit the justice button. If hitting the justice button was all you needed to do to produce justice in the government, everyone would hit the justice button. But it doesn't work that way. So, so it's most, sometimes it does. Most of the time it doesn't. When you're trying to design some sort of system that produces true justice for a country, it is very difficult. Not to mention the people who are in place to, 
to execute on the laws. It is a very difficult thing. So it's, it's, we shouldn't think of it as a light switch. We should think of it as an airplane. So imagine for a moment, I had a big whiteboard up here. I thought about doing this, but uh, I decided not to. But a big whiteboard. Anyone here know how to draw? Any good artists? Okay, we got a few people. I don't know how to draw very well, but if I gave you a, 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 a marker, I bet you could come up here and I said, you have one minute to draw an airplane. I bet you could do it. You could take this idea of an airplane, which is a thing, it's a, it's a real thing, and you could, that idea can go into your brain, and then you can put it up on a board, and everyone can look at it and say, airplane. That's an airplane. But now, what if I said this? I want you to draw an airplane that will fly in real life. I want you to give me the details about what it will take to design an airplane that can carry 300 people and fly from New York to London. There you go, just do it. How many of you can do that? It takes a completely different skill set to be able to do that. And so I think when we're talking about how to build the country in a system of justice, it is more like building and designing an airplane than it is hitting a light switch. And this is why we must have extreme humility before God in these conversations. Because even if you, if you put it up, the airplane, that's what it is, and we all say airplane, well, that's good, it's an airplane. How do we make that thing fly? Because we want justice to work. When God says pursue justice, he means pursue justice in real life not just some, some abstract concept. And so we need to understand that so that we don't become arrogant, so that we don't go along with the world, so that we don't pretend like it's easy, but so that we understand that we must fear God if we are to have any chance. Proverbs 28.5 says, Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Number three, beware of what people do in the name of justice. Beware of what people do in the name of justice. This is where it might get a little bit controversial. But I think this is an important thing to understand. That when people go to a board and they draw an airplane, they say, do you guys like airplanes? Yeah, airplanes are in the Bible. Yeah, 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 airplanes. Now let's go do that. You should say, do what? What do you mean? What is it that you're advocating for? That we should use critical thinking skills. And the reason is that if you want to trace the worst atrocities in the last hundred years, all you must do is follow those who call for justice. Just, just look in the world and look who's chanting over justice and then follow them. And they will take you on a journey that will blow your mind. And so that's what I've done. This is what I've done the last couple of years. I've just, I've just looked at who are the people throughout history, 20th century, 19th century, who have been calling for justice and who have pushed for justice and took this concept on a board of justice and, and implemented it. Who are these people who have done this? And so we're gonna get, I'm going to go through and just give you a quick uh, history lesson of some of this, and I'm sure you're familiar with some of this. Uh, but we're going to start uh, with, with a man named Karl Marx. So here's a picture of, of Karl. 
Uh, he lived from 1818 to 1883. Do we have that video? We may, maybe we don't have a video. We do not have a video, but there's a video. Um, is there another slide there? Triangle? I hope so. Okay, here we go. So this is what happened. He's an economist. He's in Germany. He's thinking about all these things. He's thinking about capitalism and how capitalism exploits people and how there's all these people who are working and they're not getting ahead. They're just, they're just making enough money to exist. They can't, even, they can't even buy the products that they're making that are making all these people on top incredibly rich. And so he comes up with this economic idea based off of materialism, that there is no God. He comes up with this idea. It's a very powerful idea. And he says, this is the power dynamic. You have the bourgeoisie, the capitalists, the haves, who are the oppressors. Then you have the proletariat, the workers, the have-nots, the oppressed. And what Karl Marx talks about is how every person in the culture, actually in the world, but every person falls into one of these two categories. There is no neutral party. You, you are either the oppressor or you are the oppressed. And it's not about what you do individually. It's about what group you, you belong to. And so he rallied the proletariat in his ideology. He says the proletariat needs to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie in the name of justice. This is what justice would be. It would be, it would be to overthrow the oppressors. And so these ideas, they percolated for a long time, and they were picked up by a couple of men. Uh, one is named Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin. So we have some pictures of Vladimir and Joseph. They were, they were amigos. Uh, they were friends. And I, I have read quite a bit about this. I'm not going to go through the whole history, but, but this revolution. For years, years, Vladimir Lenin, the Marxist, he was underground, he, was, he, was a, he had the minority opinion, not many people believed in what he was saying, but through a series of events, one of them, the biggest one being World War I. World War I happens, and Russia, the Soviet Union, they lose World War I to Germany. But see, on the Western Front, the Allied forces are beating Germany. So Germany is not really able. They're fighting a war on two fronts, and they're not able to actually fully conquer the Soviet Union because they're, they're, they're losing on the Western Front and winning on the, on the Eastern Front. And so it creates this perfect environment for a revolution. So 1917, Lenin, he begins to come to power. 1924, and one of his main guys, one of his inner three, was Joseph Stalin. In 1924, Lenin has a massive stroke. He doesn't really even get into power until about 1921. This revolution's happening in 1917. And it's all under these ideas of the oppressors, the, the, the bourgeoisie who are exploiting everyone. And you know what? They were right about a lot of things. There was exploitation. I'm not here to defend capitalism as the only way to think, that, that it's a flawless system. They were, they were putting their finger on some real injustices, and so people rose up. And what they, pro what they were promised was a revolution, utopia, better pay, more equality, more peace, more justice for our country. And so they get after it. Lenin is firmly in power. In 1921, he has a stroke. So Le Vladimir Lenin, famous guy, he was not in power for very long. He has a stroke. And he is debilitated. He can't really do much. 
And so in the meantime, Joseph Stalin takes over in 1924, and he begins this process of actually, produ- he actually bringing about socialism in Russia. And I'm not going to get into all the details. I could talk about this forever and ever. But he actually gets to the point where he enacts socialism in the Soviet Union. Now, what, what's the result? Well, from 1918, if you want to go to the next slide, 1918 to 1956, outside of World War II, Stalin kills 65, between 65 and 80 million of his own people. Ten times more than Hitler. In the pursuit of justice, in the pursuit of equality. And it's horrific. It's absolutely horrific. And as Stalin is taking power, as Stalin is accomplishing all these great feats, uh, a country close to him, China, Mao Zedong, here's the next guy, he is emboldened, and he is coming to power. He's raising up this, this revolution in China. And I'm not, again, all these people we could talk about for days. Mao Zedong, he has what's called the Great Leap Forward. I think we have another picture here. Um, and this is the advertisement, which is pretty incredible. I mean, look how these people are very happy. Um, that guy is riding a missile. I don't know why, but I mean, people are very, they are very excited. We are moving forward. We are going forward. We're moving towards justice and equality and fairness. And the result is in a short period of time, if you want to go to the next slide about Mao Zedong, he kills, some people say it's more like 25 million. That is a very kind offer. Or, or number, I should say. Um, many people believe he killed 45 million of his own people in a very short period of time. He kills them. I mean, that's not even close to Stalin. I mean, not even close to Hitler and his effect. As he's trying to bring about a better world, that's the ideology that people bought into. If you want to go to the next guy here, and you have Pol Pot. Pol Pot, he's a, another communist, looks very happy in that picture. And in Cambodia, uh, during this time period, there's a little bit of debate. Is it 7.5 million people? Is it 10 million? Whatever. There's 10, less than 10 million people. And during this time period, when he finally gets power, he ends up killing about 2 million, if you want to go to the next slide. Um, or actually, the one before. Actually, I didn't put the, uh, that other slide up, sorry. But he ends up killing about 2.5 of his own million, or 2.5 million of his own people through starvation and direct murder. The killing fields kills them. What was the ideology? Mass murder? No way. Utopia. Fairness. Justice. And we could do this with people all around the world. Fidel Castro was not as extreme, but the same ideologies in place in North Korea, different places in Africa, it's taking root, and it's happening over these decades. And as it's spreading, what, what is happening is that people are saying socialism has not been tried. It really hasn't, they, the people haven't been in power, so these are great ideas. They even, they even use Christianity and the Bible to say, yeah, what a great socialist concept. Jesus was a socialist. But what happened is that as the evidence of socialism came out all over the world, 
you could not be a socialist in the Western world. You couldn't. Even though many of these college professors are socialists, they're communists, they're Marxists. But as the data is coming out, and the, the tens of millions of dead bodies are, are piling up. See, what, what socialism promised was more equality, more fairness, more justice, all these, all these different things, higher pay. And capitalism was the enemy. And again, I'm not here to be an apologist for capitalism, but during those same years, capitalism, they were, wherever capitalism went, people were lifted out of poverty. People were treated with dignity and respect. Wherever communism went, people were oppressed and poor, impoverished, and people are being killed. And so you couldn't be, you could not be a Marxist. You couldn't do it. You, it'd be like being, like just like today, it'd be like the KKK. You know, in 1866, the Democratic Party, or the leaders of the Democratic Party, they created the KKK. And what they did was that they capitalized on an attitude within the culture. And so that ideology of being a KKK member was allowed for a period of time. But as the full effects of the KKK became clear, it's like you can't do that anymore. You couldn't do it and be respected. And that's, that's what was happening in the 60s and the 70s with Marxism. It was being suppressed and put down. You couldn't be a respected philosopher or professor. And so people reluctantly denounced socialism. But that, that did not mean that professors and philosophers did... It did not mean they moved away from Marxism. They didn't do that. They rebranded. They rebranded ideologically, largely because of the French philosophers. Jean-Francois Lyotard, have you ever heard of him before? Or Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, and many others of these influential French philosophers. What they did is they repackaged Marxism. They, fell, they went underground and they fell in love with postmodernism. And what happened was that Marxism and postmodernism had a love child. They got married, they had a love child, and then it's called critical theory. And these ideas began to sweep through America because Marxism was already in America, but you, couldn't, you could not come out as a Marxist. It began to sweep through, and it was adopted not under the title of Marxism, but under the title of postmodernism. And so these ideas are being developed in 1970, and then 1978, Jean-Francois Lyotard, he came out with a paper, he released a paper called The Postmodern Condition that took the world by storm. Academia ate it up, philosophers ate it up, and it has had a profound impact on the world. Now, what is postmodernism? Do you guys know what postmodernism is? Just out of curiosity, I'm not going to ask you any questions. How many of you feel like you could write a one-page summary of postmodernism? Just raise your hand. I'm not going to make you do it. No one's coming on stage. How many of you could write a one-page paper on Marxism? How many of you could write a one-page paper on critical theory? Yeah, so what happens is these ideas, they come together and they have a love child. And so I don't know what to call this love child. It's, it has DNA from postmodernism, that whatever this new thing is, what's happening in our country has DNA from postmodernism, DNA from Marxism, DNA from critical theory. 
And by its very definition, it does not want to be. It does not want to be defined. Because as soon as it's defined, then you can deal with it. So it's very slippery. It dodges when it needs to dodge. And so what I'm going to do with my last 10 minutes or so is I'm going to give you seven characteristics of this new thing that's been going on for probably three or four decades which is, in our country, which is the expression of what's happening right now. And this is the thing we have to be very careful with and probably ignore. So what is it? What in the world is it? Well, um, I'm going to give it an, an abbreviation. I think I have it. If you want to put number one up, it's PMCT, Postmodern Marxist Critical Theory. I think that's what it is today. It's this conglomeration of these ideas that's happening. What is it? First, it hates Western culture. This is what you need to understand. It hates capitalism and it favors Marxism. It does not come out strongly saying we're Marxist. It doesn't, at least not very often. The leaders of BLM, did you guys see that? They came out as we are trained Marxists. We are trained Marxists and we're trying to use Marxism to train the black community in our country. I mean, they just, that's what they're trying to do. But they hate capitalism. They hate Marxism, or I'm sorry, they hate capitalism, they prefer Marxism, and they, they will not take a very clear stance on it, but they hate it. That's where it comes from. Jean-Jacques, or uh, not Jean-Jacques, but uh, uh, Jean-Francois uh, Leotard and Michel Foucault and all these people, they, they hated Western civilization. Number two, PMCT denies access to objective to, a, to an objective reality. It denies access to an objective reality. And so this is what's in the paper. It's post-structuralism is another name of this concept. It denies access to objective reality, which means that there is potentially an infinite number of ways to look at the world. There's, so any situation, any person, anything that's going on, there's a potentially, potentially there's an infinite number of ways to look at the world. And that no way is better than any other way. No way of looking at a situation or a person or whatever it is is better than another way. It's just down to your opinion. And so you might have one opinion, and that is your truth. And you might have a different opinion, and that is your truth. And I have my truth, and you have your truth, and all ideas are equally good. Which then says all cultures are equally good, produce the same amount of thriving so your concept of truth is your truth. No one is right. No one is wrong. Truth is relative. And so they're going to deny absolutes. Number three, PMCT denies grand narratives. It denies grand narratives. Postmodernism is built on materialism because it's built on Marxism. That there is no transcendent God. There is no transcendent God. Transcendent God. So the only thing that there is is material. There is no grand narrative. Now, what is a grand narrative? What is a meta-narrative? This is really important. We don't think in these terms because we've grown up in a culture with a grand narrative. The Bible is a grand narrative, that there is a transcendent God who exists in three persons, one God, three persons, eternity past. He spoke, created the world, created man and women in his image. Human beings sinned. They rebelled against God. God decided to send his own son. The Father sent the Son into the world to redeem the world, to die on the cross for our sins. He defeated sin and death and Satan at the cross. When he died, he rose again, conquering the grave, ascended into heaven, and he is seated in the throne. 
on the throne. And one day, he will return to judge the world in righteousness and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. That is a grand narrative. And what grand narratives do is that they answer questions like, who am I? Why am I here? What's my biggest problem in life? And how is that problem solved? So Christianity answers those questions. Who are you? You are an image bearer of God. You're created in the image of God. Why am I here? Why are you here? You're here for the glory of God. What is your biggest problem? It is sin. And how is that problem solved? Through the person of Jesus Christ. And to the degree that you live consistent with who you are, to that degree you will find life, happiness, satisfaction. You tracking with me? That is what a meta narrative does. That's what the Bible does. But postmodernism rejects grand narratives. And this is, this is why postmodernism is not identical to Marxism, because Jacques Derrida, he, he opposed Marxism from a grand narrative perspective. He says it should just be an economic policy, but not a grand narrative. And so, what are the implications of that? Well, here we go. The implication is that if the Bible is true, then essence, this is so important, essence precedes existence. Who you are comes before you're actually born. You are created in the image of God, and all people are created in the image of God and are equal in dignity and worth and value before their creator. And life will be found to the degree that you live consistently with who you are, the essence of who you are. Postmodernism, PMCT, says existence precedes essence. This is where the idea of the infinite malleability of the human race comes from. You are infinitely malleable. And that what a man is, what a woman is, is all socially constructed. So Jacques Derrida, he says he is a social deconstructionist. He says everything. So boys, boys wrestle with boys. Why? Because the social construct around them is squeezing this neutral blank slate into this position of wrestling with other boys. Girls, they get their nails painted. They like the color pink. Why? Because that is the social construct. And grand narratives, grand narratives that work out through the culture socialize people. So there is not such a thing as maleness or femaleness in the image of God. You are a blank slate human being and you can be whatever you want. So if you are born a male, that doesn't mean you're a male. You're not a male. You might be born with male parts, but you're actually a woman. You're actually a woman. You can identify, I am a woman, and that is completely legitimate. Gender is a social construct. Number four, PMCT values group identity over individual identity. Postmodernism values, PMCT values group identity over modern identity. This is the idea that we aren't really individuals. We're not first individual, but our identity actually comes from the group that we belong to. So the group that I belong to, and there can be multiple characteristics that help you find your group, but I'm a white, heterosexual male who's a Christian. 
And the view, this is where the critical theory comes in, the view of CMT, uh, PMCT is that all groups are fighting with one another for power. This is where Marxism and, and critical theory come in big. Everyone is fighting for power. Everything is about power. Absolutely everything is about power. All of your arguments, all of your evidence, everything you believe or you think you believe through reason is actually a tool of oppression for your group identity. It is a tool for oppression. Number five, PMCT teaches against the phallo-logocentrism, phallo logo, phallo logo, logo <laughs> or however you say that. I could say it before, anyways. But this word was coined by Jacques Derrida, and what he does, he coined this term, and it, he puts three words together, phallus, man, or male, logos, and the word logos has several meanings. In Jacques Derrida, he intends for us to know this. There are four parts. Truth, words, logic, dialogue. Phallo-logocentrism. And the third is centric, at the center. So what is at the center of Western civilization? Are you ready for it? What is at the center? How is Western civilization built? It is men using reason, dialogue, facts, theology in an attempt to arrive at truth. That is what's at the center. It is men using logic, dialogue, facts, theology in an attempt, words, in an attempt to arrive at truth. That's what's at the center. But that idea that you can use evidence Facts, logic, theology, words, dialogue, to arrive at the truth is a lie. Because there are, there are potentially, potentially an infinite number of ways to perceive reality, and no way is better than another. So the very concept of logic as a tool to arrive at truth is a myth. And since groups are warring with one another for power, Dialogue, communication, reason, logic is the territory of the oppressor, not the oppressed. So for an oppressed group to step onto the ground of reason is to concede and to continue an oppression. Therefore, you do not reason with your enemies. You do not have conversations. You do not look at evidence. You do not look at facts. You do not look at theology. What you do is fight. It is a struggle for power. That's what it is. That's the idea. And so postmodernism, I'm going so long, guys. I'm, I'm sorry. Postmodernism abandons logic. It is not a way to arrive at truth. Language. They, it abandons language or words. What Jacques Derrida says is that there is no ultimate referent or foundation. There is, no, there is no objective meaning to words. So words have to be described, and words are describing something that is in reality. 
but there is no real way to look at reality, so words can't be used to, de to actually define or describe reality. Therefore, language means whatever I say language means. I will use words, and they will mean what I want them to mean. Facts are illusory. Dialogue is a weapon. And it's all about, here's the word you already know, the patriarchy. It's all about the, the male dominance in society. So men use logic, reason, dialogue, theology to oppress everyone else. Okay, so here's the question. If wisdom, logic, or not wisdom, if logic, language, facts, evidence, dialogue are not the, the way to arrive at truth, how do you get there? How do you get there? Through your lived experience. What have you experienced? And what people will say is they'll say, wait a second, what happens when lived experience trumps facts? PMCT says facts are a tool of oppression. Throw it out. Go with lived experience. That's the idea. Next, CM, we're almost done, guys. I'm just going to keep powering through. Um, if you want to stop listening, just fake an injury and leave or something. I don't know. Um, but one of the books, I should say this, one of the books, just to let you know, this is in all the literature. It's everywhere. One of the standard books, um, it's called Race, Class, and Gender. Has anyone used this book in any of their classes? This is a standard, standard book. In setting the direction of the book, they say ob objectivity, as found through relate, or rational thought, is a Western and masculine concept that, will that we will challenge throughout this text. So the concept of arriving at objectivity or reality through rational thought is a Western masculine concept that we will rage against. That's my interpretation. Number six, CM, PMCT teaches that inequality of outcome is injustice. This is what postmodern Marxist critical theory teaches, that CM, I'm sorry, the PMCT teaches that inequality of outcome is injustice. So how do you find where the injustice and oppression is happening? through disparities of outcome. So whenever you find a disparity of outcome, the only answer is injustice. Uh, Robin D'Angelo in her famous book, White Fragility, anyone, you don't need to raise your hand. Anyone read that book? I read that book last week, and, or two weeks ago. And she says in her book, Kendi, she's using Kendi as an argument. Kendi goes on to argue that if we truly believe that all human beings are equal, stop there for a second, is that true? Do you believe that, Christian? That all human beings are created equal? Then disparity in condition can only be the result of systemic discrimination. So inequality of outcome can only be explained through systemic discrimination. So all you need to find is disparity of outcome and the case is closed. That should be rejected on its face. 
because intelligence is not distributed equally. In my family, intelligence, my biological family, intelligence is not distributed equally. My older brother is way smarter than me, way smarter. You look at life and you say, intelligence, good looks, athletic ability, personal decisions are not equally distributed. Therefore, equality of outcome is not evidence for injustice inherently. And number seven, this is where it ends up. PMCT calls for people to use the government to produce justice, which is not equality of opportunity, but equality of outcome. So this is what it's about right now. In the name of justice, the goal of everything that's happening right now with Black Lives Matter, the statement Black Lives Matter is true, but what is happening is pressure is being applied to use the government to produce equality of outcome. There it is. So what do we do in light of all this? Seek God. Preach the gospel. You seek God and you preach the gospel. Use your, use your hands and your heart to love people. And be very careful with those who claim to be pursuing justice. Be very careful and just say, okay, what do you mean? Remember Justin Bieber's famous song, What Do You Mean? You know that song? I heard that on the radio. I think that's probably the question we need to ask people. What do you mean? What do you mean? You're talking about social justice. What do you mean? Do you mean the political term? The political definition? The Oxford Dictionary definition? What do you mean? And I, th- I believe that the more as Christians we are settled in the sense that God's word is sufficient, the more we're settled in the truth that the gospel is the solution for the world. And the more we move out into the world with our eyes on the Lord, the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the more we proclaim Christ to a lost world, I believe that is the best possible thing we can do. And so we have to be careful, don't get swept away with the world. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us. Lord, we thank you so much just for the truth that you came and you lived and you died and you rose again on our behalf. And I just, I pray, Lord, that we would be wise. We would be wise, that we would not be racist at all, that we would not discriminate on the basis of race. But rather, Lord, we would love people. We would see the humanity of each person we come into contact with. Help us, help us, God, to be careful. Help us to be careful not to get sucked up by the world. Help us to be the salt and the light, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.